Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Hackerling. This is episode 49, Look Who's Talking, from 1989. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Cara Gallerigan. And I want to apologize to this movie. Last week, I think, when I was talking about how devastated I was that we were doing these movies, that Giant Dangerously was not my speed at all, and then European Vacation was even less so my speed, I was like, and we got that stupid Talking Baby movie next week. I was so wrong. I love this movie. This movie is incredible. It's weird and wonderful. All you need to know, I think, about the making of this movie, I'm going to drop a trivia thing up front, in Kirstie Alley's memoir, she admitted that she fell in love with John Travolta while making this movie, but decided to remain true to her husband, her partner, and did not act on it. But that is, I think, indicative of the level of love found on this set. And later, later, she referred to him as the love of her life. Wow. I love that. That story is the love of my life. Joey, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to ever say I told you so, but like, I kind of, you know, I was saying this is going to be a good movie, like to hang in there, not to get too discouraged that there were things coming that were going to make you happy. So I'm really glad that you enjoyed this. That makes me very, very happy. I love it. I, as I've stated previously, multiple times on this very podcast, Clueless is my favorite movie, but in the past year or so, I've been like, wow, I'm in my 30s now. I should maybe get a new favorite movie that doesn't involve high school students. And you guys, what if this is my new favorite movie? Cool. I don't know. I don't know for sure. But I did watch it twice in two days, and it's amazing. (laughs) When you said I'm in my 30s, I was like, oh, this sentence is going to go in a very different way. (laughs) Because we just had your podcasting partner, Jordan Paul Clark, and by just, I mean, as we're recording this, came out probably about a month or so ago, maybe a little bit more, actually a little bit more than a month ago on our Watch a Throne feed. So not just at all. Not at all, because we are recording early, and then this is late, and we it's all a thing. But Jordan was on Watch the Throne with me and Mike to talk about Tully, and she was talking about how, in that movie, it's very clearly, it seems to her, that Marlo, the Charlize Theron character, had children because her biological clock was ticking, <laughs> and she had to make a decision. And so that's a phrase that's uttered in here. So when you were saying, you know, I'm in my 30s now, and I was like, <laughs> oh, and that just, it, it went in a completely different direction. Oh, yeah. No, I don't want kids. There, There is no clock. <laughs> it was as much of an about face in my head as going from European vacation was to this. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is uh, leaps and bounds. And also, you know, we've talked about it the last couple of times. It's the first one, first movie that we've done that she wrote. And it's clear that this movie matters to her, that the story matters. You know, her dad is in this. Her husband is in this. It's a very personal project. Even her daughter. You know, it's it's wonderful. It feels like she shines through in this movie mm-hmm. as well. Like, I feel like I know her better mm-hmm. after watching this. For you know, sure. it's extremely personal, but also incredibly accessible. Like we talked about in the first episode, I think, that a lot of times women, not just in film, but since we're talking about a film, but women in film and women directors especially wind up having their careers kind of cut short or altered or whatever projects fall apart because they get pregnant and have a kid and not necessarily like because of that more because of like how everyone around them (laughs) reacts to that but I think it's so rad that like this was inspired by her having a kid and it's her biggest hit and it it was this huge huge movie that feels so Amy Hecker like I, I love it there were things that I didn't love about it the first time that I watched it. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, I don't care about any of them. <laughs> like, it's kind of crazy, like, the mass appeal I feel like this movie has. Like, this came out in 89. I was 
brought to the theater with my parents and family to go see this movie. I mean, I had no idea what was happening in that opening sequence at the time. <laughs> but, you know, throughout the years, like, this became a very quoted film in my house. Stuff like Not Lamb, Lame, and other lines in this movie just, like, became part of our family. Like, it was really funny just how watched this movie has been over the years for me. Let us talk about that opening sequence because... Oh my god. You both watched it before I did, and you were talking in our little thread about how it is maybe the craziest opening scene in movie history. And my response was, you can listen to and you can go watch Superman 3 and hear Mike and me talk about it on Mike's Third Time to Charm episode about it. That movie has the best opening sequence. This one, <laughs> as soon as I saw this thing, that like I, I, I had a sense of what it was. I was like, is this a Fight Club-style journey through a fallopian tube? And the answer is yes. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, Like this is how the movie starts and ends. And there is animation, then real-life action, and then more animation with crazy voices. And it is weird and wonderful. And these 30-second little animation things brought me more joy than anything in the last two movies we did at all. Like, it's just, from the jump, I was like, oh, I'm in good hands here. This is the kind of movie that I want to watch. It made me laugh so hard I triggered my own menstrual cramps. (laughs) (laughs) blew my mind. And actually, it's not just animation. It was like a combination of both practical effects and visual effects. Although Amy Heckerling made sure to point out in an interview that she did that back then they called them electronic effects. Oh, okay. (laughs) But what they did was they had to like, because eventually you see like the zygote develop into a fetus, into a baby. Voiced by Bruce Willis voiced by Bruce Willis. We'll get to that. So they actually had to make like five different models and they were actually like little puppets. So like some of the shots were super complicated. And then the part where the egg and the sperm are like traveling through the fallopian tube, the sperm were little vinyl sperm. I don't know. They made them out of vinyl. Like puppets. Yeah. And put fishing weights in the front of them. And so they were dumped in a tank and then cascaded down the tank through water and picked up by an underwater camera. Because I was watching it and I was like, how did they do this? It's 1989. And I was trying to figure out, like, was it animation or like whatever, but like the lighting seemed weird. And so that was like one of the first things I looked up after I watched it because it was very exciting to me. That's amazing. Is it a little crazy that you got away with this? I mean, well, I mean, it's you, you, yeah. you see it in like fourth grade, right? Like you see this kind of thing, right? I guess you're right. If it didn't have the Bruce Willis and the Beach Boys playing, it looks like an instructional video. Yeah, probably look like maybe put it in sepia tone or something like that. And yeah, you're right there. It's the addition of like all of them saying like, come on guys, like I got the map, like over here, I see something up ahead. And then like I get around by the Beach Boys. I mean, just the whole combination is just hilarious. Yeah, I don't know that this scene is overly sexual, but I'm sure Kara read this. There was trivia that Amy Heckerling first pitched this to Disney Mm -hmm. and Disney CEO Michael Eisner said that there was too sexual, even for their racier touchstone pictures banner. And then a whole bunch of other studios pass on it. And eventually, TriStar liked the script enough and greenlit the film with the $7 million budget. But, like, this movie, whether it was the scene or later when Travolta and Kirstie Alley are having sex or whatever, there's just enough sexual innuendo or, like, because it's, you don't, there's no nudity. You know, there's no overt, like, there's just, like, they just kiss. Like, there's nothing even, like, really suggest, like, super suggestive, but it was enough to scare 
production studios away from funding this. And I hope that's not, but it also might be part of what Kara was saying earlier about the world seeing Amy Heckerling like, oh, you have a kid, like, you can't make a movie. Like, you know, I, I, it might be part of that, but... And also, like, people don't go to see movies starring women, and no one cares about pregnancy, and, like, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole thing. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna play a little bit of quick, quick Joey trivia. One of my favorite childhood movies starred Kirstie Alley. Can either of you guess it? I don't know, but I have a favorite movie when I was a teenager that starred Kirstie Alley. I huh. wonder if it's the same film. Probably, almost certainly not. They reference it in this movie, actually. Before you do the trivia, though, I just want to point out that a piece of feedback that she had gotten from the studio when we were talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High was that the movie was too sexual, but not sexy. And I think that's something that is going to kind of come up again and again and again. And in, the, in this okay. movie, that is very much the case because it's sure. it is sexual. It's literally like it's actual. This is what happens when people have sex, right? But it's not sexy. And the way that even the almost sex scene is shot and we can get into that later but again these are sexual things that are happening but not necessarily in a very sexy way yeah there's very adult themes like every theme in here i feel is like a very adult whether it be the relationship between travolta and the boy and travolta Mm -hmm. and kirstie alley and kirstie alley and her you know the man that she got pregnant with like all all those things i think combine together to make it a, a complex drama but it's a comedy drama so it's it's also a rom-com like it is that's it that's what it is yeah it feels more like a rom-com right yeah well so mike for your trivia i know that there are two different kirstie alley movies referenced in this one of which was covered on brian rodriguez's podcast is that the one you're talking about no no not that i nope oh because she mentions that she has she might have to go to summer school Ah, very nice. You know, when she drops out of Lamaze class. So Summer School, check out High School Summer Party, which is a really, really fun movie. Was the other one Star Trek 2? Yes, it was. Wrath of Khan. There you go. My favorite Kirstie Alley movie came out, I think, like seven years after this. And if this was a movie that you liked as a teenager, we were going to have sort of big problems. I'm on edge here. I loved... It Takes Two with the Olsen Twins and Kirstie Alley. Oh, Ooh, yeah. boy. Oh, man. Don't watch it now, but, like, it was great in 96 or whenever. Like, it was, you know, right my out. It's sort of, I, I want to say parent trappy. Like, I think it's pretty much parent trap, but with Kirstie Alley. And I want to say Steve Gutenberg, but that might not be right. She was also in that, like, Amish movie, right? With Tim Allen, question mark? I don't know if that was who that was. Yep. They were hiding from the mob or something. Yeah. Richer or poorer. I mean, I used to watch Full House, so I'm aware of the Olsen twins back then. Did you know, speaking of Full House, that John Stamos was the first choice for the Travolta role? No. But then the producers of Full House would not let him out of his contract, and so they considered Michael Keaton, Mel Gibson, Jeff Goldblum, and Griffin Dunn, and then eventually went with Travolta. This was his first acting role, I think, in like five years. Was this before or after The Experts? He had just done like The Experts at some point in the 90s. This was the same year as The Experts. With He was in with Kelly Preston and The Experts. Yeah, I think that's where he met her and they, they end up getting married and they're nightclub owners that are secretly flown to Russia to train a bunch of sleeper cells that are going to be implanted in middle America. It's crazy. Check it out. Travolta is so good in this movie. And I realized about 20 minutes in, I was like, oh, shit, in five years, this baby is going to murder John Travolta on a toilet in Pulp Fiction, <laughs> which yeah. blew my mind. 
I'll tell you what I remember vividly what blew my mind in theaters, but aside from the title sequence, was not realizing it was John Travolta until like three scenes later where he comes to the house to return the purse. And I leaned over to my mom. I was like, that's Travolta? Because like as a kid, I had just really known him from Greece and stuff. And like he just did not look familiar to me. I was just really surprised. But but I mean, he kills it in this. He's, he's fantastic. He dances with a baby. He dances with Kirstie Alley. He dances all over this joint. I love the dance scenes. <laughs> they were so good. One thing I noticed about the dance scenes, I don't know if either of you caught this, and the only reason I noticed it is because of our conversation from Fast Times, but there's a couple close-ups of Mikey's Nikes, which rhyme, and I was wondering, you know, because Spicoli <laughs> made Vans popular, right? Like, I wonder if Amy Hackman was like, I did it once. Let's see if I could do it again. Like, I wonder <laughs> if toddler sales of Nike shoes boomed after this movie because like he looks so cool in those little velcro nikes yeah oh my god and all of the actors i think there were like five different kids there were a bunch of babies that they had because they had to like get a baby in the right mood for different scenes you know and then the kid that plays him as a toddler they're all so good they are really really good yeah you know they say especially as like i mean this isn't her first feature or anything but they say like you know you really shouldn't work with children or pets or animals if you can avoid it and it's like this is all kids like she's working with nothing really but like all those little kids and stuff and the performances and like the facial expressions like she got exactly what she needed to you know do whatever she did in editing with the voiceover and stuff like it's just incredible like the clarity it seems like she had going into this whole thing it's like it just feels like such such a complete vision and what I love about the voiceover, I mean, the voiceover, like, Bruce Willis is great throughout, and the other actors that they have come in here and there, like, as all the little girls that he's, like, flirting with, I guess, throughout the entire movie. But at the end, when Mikey walks to the car to drive away and gets in, and he's like, it feels a little different, but also in a way that I love, where it feels like Bruce Willis is, like, commenting on the scene. He's like, well, I'm just going to put this toy right here, because that's where that goes, and just, like, gets in the car. And it feels sort of, like, almost third person as opposed to first person, but it works in that scene, I think. Like, he's so good throughout just communicating this this inner monologue of this toddler, and then there, when he's just walking to the car, it just feels weird and wonderful in a, in a slightly different way that I love even more. Yeah. Apparently, in other countries, Mikey's voice was taken on by popular oh. regional stars, which was actually, allegedly, Travolta's idea. When they released the movie in foreign markets, he had the idea of getting different celebrities in different countries to be cast as the baby, so you'd have a Spanish or an Italian star, and that made a big difference in the appeal. That's really smart, actually. You know, I don't know if Bruce Willis was too pleased with that idea. What I thought was very interesting is how sometimes the baby talk is... it. It could be considered like cheating a little bit, like babies talk to the to each other, and it almost seems like, well, what are they like reading each other's mind or something? Because they're they're just they're clearly not speaking. But I was like totally fine with that. Like that didn't I didn't care about that. You know what I mean? I just she created like such a great distinction between sort of like reality and baby reality. I guess I don't know what really else to call it. And I think. A great trick that helped that, that she brought back, that Kara, I know you were commenting on in a previous episode, are the dream sequences. 
Hell yeah, they're so good in this. And I just think that going into those different styles from time to time just helps to accept this broken reality of, you know, babies being able to talk and things and stuff. So, like, that's just really, really clever directing and, like, really tough stuff to uh, to manage. And, like, it just feels so, I'm not going to say, like, effortless or anything because, like, it looks like this was hard work to do with the baby stuff and everything. But it's pretty pretty flawless like it's super clean this movie's like really brisk it's fast it's funny it's just what a tremendous amount of vision this sort of thing i think would require yeah the dream sequences as and like fantasy sequences and premonition the nightmare like there's like kind of a full spectrum of those things in this that are so wonderful and something that I was kind of like clicking through a bunch of her movies and a bunch of the crew on different movies like trying to figure out who she works with like from movie to movie to see if there's anyone that she like kind of takes with her because she does it's hard to like pinpoint but she really does have this very cohesive kind of style and voice and uh, it turns out that she's used the same editor for almost everything and that was kind of an aha moment because also in this are a lot of really Mm -hmm. great montages and I think in addition to fantasy slash dream sequences being like a really big strength for her so too are montages and goodness knows I love a montage you know what pairs well with those montages and this is something that we've talked about with her other movies before too the music in this movie is so good yeah the soundtrack's so good like the second the first Beach Boys song came on I was like yes the Beach Boys Janis Joplin's Cry Baby is great Walking on Sunshine is great Talking Heads are in there from beginning to end it's like this movie is just for a movie about a baby like a rom-com baby movie like it's just cool you know like it's just this weird kind of cool movie also so, for the record, this is not at all the plot I thought it was. For some reason in my head, I thought the baby spoke out loud and that the parents could hear it. I didn't know what the plot was. Like, it didn't make sense in my head that they could understand him or they could hear him, but no one else could or something. But I also don't know how that would be a movie. This is just, it's different, but I like this better because this is actually a story. This almost feels like it would work without the baby, like, talking. I mean, the baby's got to be there, but it almost feels like it would work without the baby. It wouldn't be funny. Yeah, it could have just been a regular rom-com. Yeah, like, it wouldn't be as funny, and I wouldn't like it as much, but and it wouldn't have that niche appeal, I guess, that extra appeal to sort of set it apart. But that's the thing. Like, it's just a really solid story as well, and it feels like real people problems. Like, this is fun. This kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kara, where people are like, well, who, who wants to see movies about pregnant women? And I'm like, I do, because, like, I'm never going to get pregnant, you know what I'm saying? And, like, that's why one reason I watch a lot of movies is to witness other experiences and try and get a better understanding of ones that I'm never going to be able to have, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's that's why it's so important that we need more people with diverse points of view making movies, because if you think about all of the movies that have ever been made about pregnant people, like, they've been all made by guys, and that's crazy, you know? People who've never had that experience, and I love how they managed to, like, sneak attack so many facts about pregnancy and childbirth into this but <laughs> that's i think another level to this movie is that it's because it it presents everything as this is what real people are, are going through like it doesn't feel glossy or like hollywood to me in that sense right like i, I don't want to say like it's not a particularly good looking film but like there aren't any really masterful swooping shots and like it's not really going for any of that it's just trying to be real and i think that really comes across and like i just really appreciate 
that about it. And like, yes, I would very much like to just, you know, see more women movies about pregnant women that aren't like Rosemary's Baby all the time or anything like that. Right. Which, oh my goodness. Yeah. Or Mike, like most of the movies in the Charlize universe where she was pregnant over and over and over again, we're like, and I think we even asked Kara, it's not, you know, not, mm-hmm. not great, not directed well. Right. That's what I was going to talk about. Well, we talked about it on the episode for the one where she walks off into the woods. The road. Yeah. That I was asking you, like, how many movies she's done and how many of them was she pregnant or have get, has given birth or was a mother. And you guys said that you thought that it was kind of a lot. Yes. It surprised, it surprised me how often it had happened. However... It seems often because it, it's something that we don't see in movies a lot, but in real life, like women get pregnant all the time, <laughs> all the time, you know, and it's like a very much a fact of life for women, whether we wind up wanting children or not wanting children or whatever, it's still a thing that permeates our lives and that we have to think about and we have to deal with. I mean, the fact that like we don't see menstruation in movies more is mind boggling to me, or it would be if I didn't know everything else about why things are the way they are and why we don't see these things in movies. But like that is so much a fact of life for women that it's the reason we don't see it more in film is because we don't have more women telling their own stories and telling stories about bodies that do things like this, you know? Bodies do stuff. Bodies do stuff. And a lot of times it's really weird stuff. (laughs) And I love how much they kind of snuck that into this too. Like, because you see aspects of pregnancy in this, like how she's reading about postpartum depression or how a few days after she gives birth, she realizes that suddenly her boobs are like way bigger and, and full of milk and whatever. And we don't get to see, you know, again, these like sexual but unsexy parts of pregnancy and childbirth. You know, we got a lot of it in. Tully, but that is a drastically different tone than this. So, yeah, I haven't seen it, but it sounds like a very different movie. <laughs> like it's great, it's wonderful, but I mean, it's it's just nice to see it represented fairly. Like that's all. Like yeah, that's what I like about this movie and Tully and stuff is that they're able to be tonally different and don't have to be just like props or something like that. It could we could actually get real aspects right. of that life experience, which is nice. And for so long, at least under the Hayes Code, I don't even think you could show a pregnant person in a film or like use the word pregnant. Like it would have to be with child or in a way or like all of these like weird euphemisms for this very normal thing that happens to a lot of people in their lifetimes. And even like predating the Hayes Code and just like in public life in general, pregnant women like historically a lot of times have been kind of hidden away um, for a variety of reasons related to maternal mortality rates and all sorts of things but i don't think i like appreciated it as much on the first watch of this movie than i did the second time that i watched it because i was like oh my god like it it really hit me the second time whereas the first time i was just kind of like this is <laughs> so weird <laughs> You know, and it works on like those two different levels of just being like a really weird romantic comedy or like a really salient commentary on pregnancy and childbirth and like being a woman in the world at this point in time. I I think it's just great because it's her perspective on on all of this. Right. And And it goes even beyond that to the way that the men are portrayed in this movie as well. You know, like I, I just think like that those are really sort of touchy social 
subjects to tap around, right, is like not only just being a single mother, but having gotten pregnant through an affair with a married man and uh, and all that, that that they deal with like pretty well in this movie. I was surprised. Like as a little kid, I didn't pick up on a lot of that stuff. But like as an adult, I was like, wow, this is like very tactful the way that they're just dealing with this the way mm-hmm. people would deal with it and not necessarily playing it entirely for for laughs or anything but like it's the more sort of dramatic parts of the movie and then they could cut to the talking baby right and that's sort of like they're they they have like this great out for anything in this which is just another part of its design that is just brilliant is like if things ever get too serious or whatever just like cut to the talking baby man <laughs> I mean, if that's not a lesson to learn for filmmaking, I don't know what is. Cut to Talking Baby. I want to talk about the parents in this movie because going to what you were just saying, Mike, about how it gets into the affair versus the story that she tells about artificial insemination and everything, I got a real, and I I don't want to be blasphemous to a, a movie that we have deemed just about perfect, Mike, but I got a real Moonstruck vibe from this family. Mm, I wonder why. Because that's Olympia Dukakis from Moonstruck. Well, that might be why, but it also feels like maybe that's just her. Maybe that's just the actress coming across on screen, but it feels like it's the same kind of family. You know what I mean? It does seem like, this might not be true, but like way too open and just like way too nosy and just, you know, all up in her business. And also the dad who was just like happy-go-lucky, like reading the journal of accountancy and just like cracking up while reading. Like, oh my God. What I can only imagine is the most dry material ever. Yeah, but what her mother says before that, because uh, Christy Ellie is like, do you ever get bored with dad? She's like, get bored with him. How could I ever get bored? Cut to man sitting outside laughing hysterically reading an accounting magazine. It made me laugh so hard. I think that's her real dad, right? Is that what I read? And he actually is an accountant. And there's a line later in the movie where she's talking to, Kirstie Alley's talking to her boss, who is Amy Heckerling's husband in real life. And he says, we're not personal, we're accountants. Like, it's just this weird, not like vendetta against accountants, because it's clearly coming from a place of love, but like, how many movies are there about accountants where it's not like super important, but it's also kind of important to the story? And it's just this weird and specific, like, but coming from a place where she knows these things to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Amy Heckerling's mother was also an accountant. So like, both of her parents. And in this movie, Kirstie Alley is like a second generation working woman, you know, which is, this is very much of the time. I talked about in the first episode that Amy Hagerling cited a article from the time about how women over 40 were however many times more likely to die by terrorist attack than find a husband. But also this is after the women's rights movement and very much as sisters are doing it for themselves sort of era and it just i think captures it all like so so wonderfully i actually got a couple things off of the because i i I don't know from time to time i try and and wonder if there's just maybe even more to it when a character has a specific job in a film and i mean instantly i went to yes it's a punchline like i thought of parks and rec right when ben goes to become an accountant and like <laughs> his super dry humor is like the funniest thing ever to all of them but also like the old stereotype of like oh girls aren't good at math and it's like well she's an accountant she's great at math like i mm-hmm. thought that was like encouraging for people to see yeah 
Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And then lastly, I was like, well, it's kind of interesting how she's an accountant, but she hasn't been very sort of like accountable for her actions in her own life kind of thing. So like, you know, this movie kind of made me think a little more than than on previous viewings for sure. Well, you know what I really want? I want a third generation accountant because we get a shot of baby accountant in this movie and I loved it. I wrote down in all capital letters my notes, baby accountant. Oh my god, it's so cute. Yeah, that was really cute. Speaking of all caps notes, Amy Heckerling cast her best friend, Twink Kaplan, in this as her work best friend, I guess. She's the woman that she works across from. And she plays Miss Geist in Clueless. And she looks so different in this because in Clueless, she's like wearing glasses and like looks all homely and whatever. And in this, she's got her hair done. She wears some fantastic dresses. It was really exciting for me to see her in this. You know, this is a terrible transition, but speaking of other little things that Amy Heckerling did right, we, we talked about this in our thread before we started recording. We've not brought it up here. This movie has the most perfect director card, mm-hmm. where it's written and directed by Amy Heckerling atop a toilet that the name goes away and Kirstie Alley promptly vomits in before she knows that she's pregnant. Like, it's just self-deprecating or just honest or just funny. It's so It's so good. I just think that's the funniest thing in the world. I would totally do that, yes. But also, I mean, there hadn't been a toilet on screen until what, like Psycho, when Hitchcock did it in Psycho? So like that... But really? Oh, yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I don't know if archivists have found a movie before Psycho, but to the best of my knowledge, that's like the the general trivia is like Psycho was the first to have a toilet on screen in the movie. And I think it's actually in the trailer too, which no one really picks up on. But point being is that like, yeah, to show a toilet on screen in cinema was like you just don't like talk about the haze code like yeah and so i think that's that's a nice nod to that idea yeah and also just that like so much of your life when you're pregnant revolves around a toilet like not just like when you're vomiting or whatever but you just have to pee like constantly and we see that in this movie too so i like that she got it in that way I just think it's the funniest thing. You know what I thought was uh, pretty funny is um, when baby Mikey grows hands, he goes, hey, Mr. Hand. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down. And this is also, I mean, this this came from our friend Austin Wolf Southern's Letterbox review. Mike, I don't know if you saw it, but he said this is one of his favorite rom-coms and also his favorite rom-com for sure that insinuates where a baby wants to blow himself. Because they're talking about, she's reading from, or she's talking to the doctor, Don S. Davis. I have to point out every time that he's on screen, Mike, in the podcast, that he plays Dana Scully's dad in X-Files. Oh, yep. I got that down. Oh, wait. I thought he was Cigarette Smoking Man. He's Scully's dad. I was never, I didn't get super deep into X-Files. Sorry. He looked familiar, though, but I knew he was from the show. Yeah, I never made it past the first season. Guys, it's like, it might be my favorite show. Like, I like Leftovers and Lost are up there, but X-Files is... No, I know it's good. People love it. Her doctor plays Scully's dad in X-Files, but her doctor is saying that, you know, at this age, that it either sprouts the, I guess, I don't know, the, the penis, the vulva, and... Yeah, that's another thing. They use anatomically correct terms in this movie, which very rarely happens. Like, because he says penis and vulva, and I was like, yes, good job. And we cut to baby Bruce Willis, and he, because he, he, earlier we saw him talking about the arms, and like, you know, he knows all these words somehow, and then he sees his penis sprout, and he's like, oh, look, there's another arm going down there. He's like, I wonder how I'm going to get that in my mouth. And I was like, what? 
what? Like, how is this movie? Like, man, like, it's just, it's so weird and good. There was another scene where they were, and maybe, or maybe that this shot was going to be part of that scene, but it took them 115 takes to get Mikey playing with his placenta with, like, the weird little puppet. It required 12 puppeteers and involved people hanging upside down, but the shot wound up being cut from the film. Perhaps it was too graphic. I don't know. Well, speaking of graphic, apparently Bruce Willis improv a lot of X-rated takes that I would, you know, I'm sure Amy Hackerling loved, and that those exist somewhere. I also do wonder, you know, we were talking before about how good the kids are. Like, I wonder how many hours of footage she shot that's just unusable with the kids not doing. Like, there's a stat. I don't remember what it is, Carrie. You might know this because you love nature and the outdoors. There's something like you have to be in in nature for like ten or a hundred hours or something to get like three seconds of usable silent footage. Like, it's this ridiculous ratio because there's so much like you know noise, like man-made noise in the world that to get like even just the tiniest bit of usable like natural sound, you need so much ridiculous. Like, it's like I don't I don't know what the number is. I don't know because it depends on like where you are. Like I go places in nature where I'm able to like record nature sounds with no problem. There's a stat that I read one time and I read on the internet so I know that it's true but anyway and also like if you are shooting the natural world let's say for a nature documentary or whatever a lot of that is fully sound or like sound recorded like when you watch planet earth or like a any of the other like david attenborough nature documentaries like that's not the noise that's happening when the camera's rolling it's different noise a lot of times they're recreating the environment too for for most of those shots as well so it's a lot of trickery involved yeah but to your question joey i don't know but I don't actually think that there would have been a ton of extra footage. Like, that's part of the reason that they had so many babies on set, like I said before. Because Amy Heckerling in interviews had said that they were really trying to do this super low budget. And because they were shooting on film and whatever, like, they couldn't they couldn't just, like, burn tape, you know? So they just had, like, a bullpen of babies that they called on for the right time. Yeah, which is... Amazing. I don't know if either of you looked this up. I looked it up while we were talking earlier. This movie, we said, has a $7 million budget. Did either of you look, or do you want to guess how much it made? Mm, I definitely read it, but I didn't write it down, so I have no idea. Mike, do you have any guesses? And I will say, domestic and foreign is almost an exact split. So replacing Bruce Willis with local stars seems to have paid off. This stuff's tough. I know, it's it's real tough. This is basically the letterbox game, but, you know, for numbers. It was like maybe $250 million? $300 million. $296,999. I was close. Uh, it was ridiculously successful. Keeping the cost low, as though Fast Times didn't give her enough leeway to do whatever she wanted, this had to have. And then I guess, I wonder, I guess we'll get to it next episode for Look Who's Talking 2, T-O-O, but I wonder how much of the decision to do a sequel was hers, and what was the studio like, look, you just made essentially $300 million on nothing, like, let's do another one of these. And then there's the third one, which we might also talk about next week on Mike's podcast, uh, that she's not involved with, but I wonder how much they wanted to keep milking it, because the other thing that I noticed was that, you know, she does Fast Times in 82, and then Giant Dangerously in 84, then European Vacation in 85, has a baby, four years later makes this one, and then she makes the sequel a year later. So she's obviously back to work now but you know i wonder how much of it i'm guessing probably a lot was the studio saying like we just made so much money please make another one for us yeah yeah i think it was like 
partially like some kind of phenomenon, right? Where the studio is just like, holy shit, we gotta, we just gotta milk this cow, cash in on the talking baby thing until like, you know, it's gonna blow over soon. Well, there was another thing, just just real quick, that there, this was apparently part of the late 80s Hollywood cycle of baby pictures. There was Baby Boom, For Keeps, Immediate Family, Three Men and a Baby, She's Having a Baby, this movie, and the sequel. Three Men and a Baby, directed by Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. So there's like a Star Trek connection there. A Trek connection? Apparently this was very influential on the animation studio Kalaski Kasupo, who made Rugrats, which this, I guess, in a way sort of led to talking baby TV show Rugrats, which is weird to think about, but also makes sense. Oh, no, I think it makes total sense. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know if I like got all my disbelief out of the way ahead of time or if it's having seen Rugrats a lot as a kid, but it like wasn't weird to me that the baby was talking and talking to each other. Like for some reason that like didn't occur to me while I was watching it to think that that might be a weird thing. <laughs> so a couple years ago, uh, Illumination Studios, the I'll say it's scourge of the animation world right now, made Secret Life of Pets. And that is in a lot of ways, I think, similar. Similar to this, is like, what if our pets could talk? What if our pets had inner dialogue? And that is just... Well, that's basically every cartoon. Sure, but that is not... I, I really didn't like that. When I first saw this when as a kid, like I got a huge Garfield vibe out of it, you know, and it's like Stewie now, I guess. But like back then I was like, well, can John hear him or not? Like who does? Yoda, Odie understands Garfield, but like what, where are the boundaries? Like, and so by the time I got to Luku's talking, I think my mind was able to acclimate fine. And I had seen enough cartoons at that point. You know what I, I kind of wish happened in this movie a little bit more, but it does, I think, toward the end is that we have Mikey as this like sentient Bruce Willis, right? Where he understands the world. You know, he's limited by what his baby body can do. He can't really speak yet, but he has his mind made up halfway through the movie, really, that he wants John Travolta to be his dad, right? And I wish that there was a little bit more, although I I don't want to knock this movie because I really, really like it so much that I don't want to change it, but I, I wish that there was more of him acting in certain ways to like manipulate, like go against Albert. You know what I mean? Like I feel like there, there was opportunity possibly for that to do more. If that makes sense? Like, because he knows what he wants. He knows he wants to push this issue or whatever. I just wish that we saw a little bit more of that manipulation. But then when, when we finally go to Albert's apartment, which is very, it's, like, it's all like bright colors and like clowns and a jukebox and like very childlike for some reason. Yet there are choking hazards everywhere, which I loved. Yes. And, you know, he finally, when he goes there, he sort of starts acting out and acting, you know, just to the outside world like a baby, you know, pooping and breaking things and dropping things. That's the first time he ever meets Albert. Like, he doesn't know that that guy is actually his dad. He has no idea who he is. I guess we do get a little bit like when he is on the phone and he wants her to call. Like, he's trying, I guess, but... It's tough. This movie has a lot to do, you know, and they kind of introduce that thread a bit late in the game. It's like the second act turning point almost is like now Mikey understands what a daddy is and he realizes he doesn't have one and he knows that James is who he wants to be his daddy and everything. And and I think it's great. I think it's a great development in the movie. You know, it gives Mikey more to do. It makes him more of like a character actually. And there's some kind of nice tension going on for us, the audience going like, is Mikey going to get what he wants? Like, because we want them to get together at this point too, but there's friction in their relationship. 
relationship because their relationship is very complex because there's like boundary issues and those kinds of things develop when you have sort of like this, you know, 30, 40 year old guy as a male babysitter for, you know, a kid that doesn't have a dad, like as just an uncle who babysit his nephew for the last eight years, like he slipped up and called me dad from time to time. Like it's complicated, you know, it can be tough. And so like, I just give him a lot of credit for tackling all of those issues and, and doing it like, you know, very maturely and finding a way to like get this in the movie and not just make it sort of like um, like a joke or something like that. Like it actually ends up being sort of like a plot development and it carries through yeah. to the very end and to the resolution and everything. So I thought that was kind of great. Yeah. I know that actor from things like with him much older and it was weird seeing him as like a younger-ish guy because he looks so much like Lou Reed. My brain kept thinking he was Lou Reed, and I really got a kick out of imagining Lou Reed in this movie. I think it would have been hilarious. Going back a second, Mike, you, you sort of triggered something in me that, you know, we are talking about how there's the reversal of Kirstie Alley as a woman good at math, but I feel like we didn't give enough credit to Amy Heckerling for writing what's sort of like a, not like a beta male, but like not like, you know, John Travolta is this like macho guy in like all of his movies, like, you know, Danny and every, you know he's just like this guy he's like the man's man like the women want him but here he's broke like he he's just like he he scams places for free lunches and free long distance calls and like doesn't really make money and like is a great guy and like a great father figure to this kid and you know a great friend to Kirstie Alley but in terms of what we associate especially in movies with like success for men he has none of that and also to just have a male in a role as like kind of a primary caretaker which we don't see a lot yeah we don't see him as a sexual being until he and Kirstie Alley kiss like they talk about he talks about how he has that date that one night but I sort of felt like that was a ruse I think that the date was really in my head I was like you know oh he's just gonna wait for her to come back and like them hanging out with the kid is like the date or whatever and it was refreshing and like unexpected to see such an unusual at least in movies type of male character yeah definitely and that's that's the heckerling lens you know what i'm saying like that i feel is just that's her point of view that's how she sees the world it's just like there should be more of this type of representation for men on screen too like you know like normal guys like i mean there are things like guys that look at at movies and stuff and it's like well i i see a lot of male action heroes too right and like i can't do any of that stuff so it doesn't always make me feel great as a guy to see that all the time either per se but like here's travolta i could totally relate to this guy like you know like i'm I'm sort of just like in a way very similar to him i don't know like i could relate to him more than a lot of other male characters in in movies so that as well like that comes from her and i've really i wasn't expecting that and that's very interesting you know and like as we're recording this a couple weeks ago i think carol is relatively caught up on this show but like on the good place the main male character who's not ted danson is this guy cheaty and he's this you know hemming and hawing like he's not the type of character that you would want to aspire to be i mean he's incredibly smart and he's kind but he's not decisive and that's why he's like in the predicament that he's in and then a couple episodes ago he took a shirt off and he is like jacked and it's like oh like this guy that i thought i could kind of relate to in a way like he's now like this unattainable like carved out of marble greek god of a man i'm like where did this come from like it just basically i'm with you mike more characters like this john travolta character please and thank you he got to do his flying thing in this travolta very we're known for flying i like to fly planes 
That was cool. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, not only is he a flight instructor and pilot, but he also does airplane with Mikey, where he like lays on his back and holds him up so Mikey can be a plane. I thought that was adorable. And there's also, while we're talking about Travolta, the third movie apparently he's in that's Staying Alive please so i mean yeah. he's not in the scene of staying alive but you know it's his signature song i guess it's, it's until pulp fiction comes around and then... sure it's his wicked game with cage i guess so i guess the closest thing the closest time that we get to him as a sexual being is when he goes to his airport hangar and there's that like really ditzy blonde who asks him oh is the baby yours and he says yeah we're just trying to find out who the real mother is which is like such a reversal of things to say and she's like oh my god like fully buys into it he's like no i'm kidding then he sees mikey looking at her boobs and mikey we hear his inner dialogue and this is a great line these things come in different sizes what are the jumbos and he sees mikey looking and says look at you staring at them we must be thinking the same thing and Mikey just goes <laughs> lunch <laughs> just like oh man like just you know he is like a dude like looking at booze but for a completely different purpose which is wonderful oh god yeah there's another time that he when he's alone with Mikey oh right after he's born and he's like how you like in the outside world it's pretty crazy huh you spend nine months trying to get out and the rest of your life trying to crawl back <laughs> in <laughs> Boy, oh boy. I mean, there. I guess also another thing, sexual, like these are sort of sexual-ish innuendos, but there's also the scene where Travolta is taking the splinter out of her finger and it sounds from the hallway like they're having sex. Not particularly comfortable or good sex, though. No, like it's sticking in me, get it out, get it out. But then when he walks out, just the way that he like casually zips up his fly, it's just, I don't know why that's, I don't know why it was down. I don't know why he chose to do it there, but it's just like the cherry on top of this wonderful scene. And, you know, her mom just responds perfectly and just like, who was that? Like, what is going on here? Yeah. So we touched on this a bit before about that, like almost sex scene, but I think this has been to date the best example of a female gaze in a sex scene that we've seen because the just the way that she frames Kirstie Alley like she is on top she's just taking her shirt off and the way that she's framed you don't actually see her boobs you just see like the triangle part top of her bra which I was like, well, I like that bra. I want to see more of it, but I appreciate this. And just the entire way that she shoots that scene, the only time that you see Kirstie Alley's either like the top half of her body or her full body are like in positions where she's not being sexy. And it's only after like the sexy part has stopped and she's like, no, you have to leave. And like, we can't do this, that the camera is like further back and you see more of her, which I found really interesting. Because what I noticed in that scene is that, you know, when Travolta starts like kissing her and I guess maybe going down on her, I don't know, but like her face and her entire body is sort of like buried in the comforter and like it's shot from that low angle, like where we can't see anything. And I'm just like, oh, this is a very like a wildly different perspective. Like I didn't, I didn't get the, I didn't think about it in terms of the whole scene, but I definitely noticed that shot as like a, oh, this is something different. This is a different point of view, different perspective than what we normally see in movies. Yeah, I think it, it services the character well too right because at that point she has not had sex in a long time and and she has been vocal about that too and then when it happens with the person she probably least expected it turns in and i think why maybe she stops it too to a degree is because it becomes way more personal than she might have thought it would at first and i think it's shot that way too right when we're just 
focused on her and it's like what she's going through and just trying to read it off her face and everything and so I definitely thought that was called for and appropriate and everything and so I was glad that yeah I didn't really expect them to go softcore or anything in this movie to any degree but like there is that one moment where he where she catches the guy in the dressing room right and like they're really going at it there's parts in this movie where she's like she thinks she's alone and she's doing the burlesque dance for Mikey and Travolta comes in and they start dancing which is weird <laughs> it's weird but and I was thinking unfortunately it reminded me of European Vacation there's a burlesque moment in that too everything is sort of sequenced appropriately which is nice like when they get to the sex scene it's not about gratuity it's about emotion and thought and her thoughts and what she's thinking and feeling and stuff and so that's how it was presented and that's that's good that shows I mean to me that shows a lot of discipline too and also probably a lot of arguments with the studio I mean I don't know for sure I didn't read anything about this but you know if you're shooting a sex scene like give the people what they want you know <laughs> like at least frame her differently or something make it a little bit sexier and I I'm curious like how much back and forth she had to do to get her movies made the way that she wanted to make them even you know working with a cinematographer or other producers or like whatever like the kind of arguments because when women say things people don't listen this is a fairly common thing that people know i think right wait carol what were you saying uh that when people <laughs> when, when women say something oh okay cool listen. especially when they're telling somebody else to do something and we even see a like a glimpse of that in this movie just as she gets to the hospital when she's in labor and there's this like back and forth about her insurance card and that she doesn't have it with her and the doctor wants to walk away from the nurse's station to go with Kirstie Alley as she's admitted and the nurse is like you didn't finish filling out this form you have to fill out this form I cannot do my job if you do not finish filling out this form I have been that woman so many times not necessarily in that hospital situation but like in various jobs where I'm like I can't do my job if you don't do yours you know and so I just was kind of thinking about that at certain points in this movie where I was like I can't believe she she managed to pull this off yeah it almost reminded me of the uh the old argument you know uh, it's sexual, but it's not sexy, right? The, what we were saying, right? And she's like, yeah, that's the point, dude. So, yeah, that's why she's still fighting that battle, but at least it's great that she won this one. Yeah, so I was thinking after we recorded whatever the last thing was that my brain keeps erasing. European vacation. Do not think about it as more, any more than you have to. That, yeah. Well, so phallic imagery has come up in every movie so far, basically. There was the large salami log in Fast Times at Ridgemont High that they're slicing up. There was the dancing dick. The cartoon dicks, yep. Yeah, in Johnny Dangerously. There was something in the last one that I don't remember. Oh, the bratwurst. Because there's a, a point, I don't remember. Maybe it wasn't in Germany. There's a sausage at some point. When they thought they're visiting Clark's relatives, but it's actually the wrong people, and they're all going around the table sort of with the bratwurst. Yeah, and the daughter like sees the sausage, and she's like, oh, I miss whatever her boyfriend's name was. And then in this movie, I was like, I had an eye out for phallic imagery, because I was like, is this something that's going to keep coming up? Because I know it comes up in Clueless. And the breadstick. Oh, yes. Which... It wouldn't have occurred to me, except that in Clueless, it is also a breadstick. Because well, tra- the way that Travolta describes starting a car is he, you put the stick in the hole, which is not the way that anybody would describe that, I don't think, at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's he's a flight instructor, not a driving instructor. <laughs> I guess. But he still knows how to drive a car. Like, it's not like he's an idiot. But then Mikey takes the breadstick and then tries to stick it in the hole, and then it works. Like, you know, he I guess that's his first sexual experience. I don't know. It's just this weird... No, I think you're... Don't read too much into the phallic imagery. I think she's just putting it in there kind of as a joke. And and there may or may not... I would have to, like, go back and do another pass through all of these movies. There might also be a lot of, like, vulva imagery in her movies, because there's been, at least in Johnny Dangerously's apartment, there were some Georgia O'Keeffe-esque paintings on the wall, and there was one in this movie, too, I think. So maybe she's just into sex organs. I don't know. Or she just thinks putting them in movies is funny, which I also that think might be, is Yeah, funny. I think that's hilarious. It's like subliminal imagery. Yeah. And also is kind of subliminal fuck you on the sexual but not sexy, like, criticism. Speaking of... John Travolta in the car when he is driving Curcielli to the hospital. He's like speeding through the streets and he yells at some guy, hey, why don't you pull over till the lewds wear off? Which, as we know, is part of Amy Hackerling's personal philosophy that people on Quaaludes should not drive. <laughs> Luckily, the world's almost out of lewds. So, Kara, I definitely thought of you during a moment in this movie when we visit Abe Vigoda and he's got huge, bushy eyebrows and Mikey grabs at him. His eyebrows! Yeah, I wrote that down. Yeah, his eyebrows are great. Abe Vigoda was a very nice man. He used to come into the store that oh. I worked in all the time. But he was very particular. He would, like, only let certain people help him. Were you one of those people? I only want Kara to help me today. Only Kara. <laughs> no. No, it was one of my friends. And then if he was busy, he would let me help him. But, you know. But also, I think that it was, this was like another kind of added layer of complexity to the film, Vigoda's character and his storyline with John Travolta, who's, so Vigoda's character has, is, some form of dementia and John Travolta is trying to get him into the right home with caretakers around the clock and that's like another thing that we don't get to see in movies I mean as far as movies and like American popular culture old people don't exist you know what I mean and and certainly not when it comes to more complex storylines about trying to get them care when they are aging and like in a vulnerable position yeah, I mean, it, nowadays you get four old dudes trying to rob a bank in Brooklyn. You know, a comedy heist. I saw that movie. I took my dad. It was like two years ago. You know, Morgan Friedman. I mean, they're all in that one. But yeah, absolutely. Or four old women reading Fifty Shades of Grey for the first time. Oh my God, I cannot wait to see that. I haven't yet. I don't, not Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't care about that. Wait, is that book club? That's called book club, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mike, you're going to have to cover it for your podcast. You're going to have to find a way to talk about it because it is, it's the embodiment of your final segment. Well, like reading the novelization of a movie called Book Club would like probably make your head blow up. <laughs> Extremely meta. But I mean, that movie is full of American treasure, elder women that we don't get to see like interact with each other. Like that one of them might be in something, but they're all in one thing. Including one of my favorites, Mary Steenburgen, who is just... What a treasure. But Mike, you have to cover that movie when you cover Fifty Shades Freed or whatever the third one is. Because I think, you know, I think whatever the third one is. I got to have a month where I do that and Twilight in the same month. Oh, no. Just get it over with? It spawned from Twilight, didn't it? Yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it was Twilight fanfic. That's how it started. Right. That just got way out of control. 
way out of control. I have a couple notes real quick, just like little observations. I always love when babies speak like old men, and Bruce Willis calls the uh, terrible blind date that you went on the uh, the, uh, the accountant. He says, who's this yutz? And just like this like little little baby like talking Yiddish, like I just made me smile. Then in Olympia Dukakis doing her like baby talk, I think she was throwing around some Yiddish like before the when we're going to have a bubba or something. I, I thought maybe it was like inherited or something from her. Maybe. I like when he, when Mikey is with the girls in the sandbox and he learns about what a daddy is and he says, he tells the joke, how many babies does it take to screw in a light bulb? And he says, the, the punchline is, what's a light bulb? And then one of the girls is like, I don't get it, which... Uh, just like a funny all-around little thing. And then one other thing that I noticed with this was just a weird thing is when Travolta is sort of spying on her, he, he comes over and she's doing that burlesque dance for Mikey and he looks in, he's sort of like watching her. In the cabinet, there's Pringles. And I was like, I didn't know Pringles were around in 1989, but it also looks like it's Pringles, like apostrophe S. Like, was there a Mr. or Mrs. Pringle and this is their chips? So many things, like clearly the tall cylinder, cylindrical canister seem delivery method but just like you know obviously 80s art and then maybe a different style but like i did not realize that pringles were that old i thought they were more of like a, a 90s thing or something no we had pringles i remember getting them at grand union Ooh, <laughs> we had grand union back yeah, in the day I had one of those too one shot i loved is because there's a lot of sort of product placement going on and no one was ever more gratuitous with it than cheerios i mean they got their box in everything during the 80s and such and there's just a great shot in here where the cheerios box is kind of like half off the shelf and they just didn't do an extra take to get it right because they clearly just don't give a shit because it's just a fucking product placement thing. And so I just, I mean, that that's how I read it. That's what came to mind to me. And I just thought that was funny. I was like, yeah, no respect for that product placement. There is a shot like right after the very brief touch on postpartum depression, her mother comes over and is like, you need to spend some time by yourself, like go out, do some things, whatever. I'll take care of the baby. Cut to the camera kind of looking up at the skyline and there's a Hitachi billboard in the shot. And I don't know if it just happened to be there or if they put that there on purpose, but Hitachi is or was the manufacturer of the iconic vibrator, the Hitachi Magic Wand, which I like went back and like looked up the history of and it was invented in 1968 and then became very popular in the 70s during the women's movement and was like this kind of like feminist icon and I just feel like that cannot possibly be an accident that her mother's like go spend some time with yourself cut to Hitachi billboard you know that is awesome yeah now I'm for some reason I know exactly what reason going to link Brian Rodriguez in the high school summer party podcast to that vibrator because you used iconic vibrator yeah so Brian this one's for you. Uh, we mentioned at the uh, really early on that at the end there is another sperm and ova sequence that leads to another baby, and that baby is voiced by Joan Rivers in her like one line of dialogue. But I looked up, and unfortunately, I mean, I would love to see a movie with Joan Rivers as the baby. The little sister in the second movie is voiced by Roseanne. So, which I remembered when I got offline last time we recorded because I was like, yeah, I'm really excited for the next two Look Who's Talking movies, and I was like, oh wait, Roseanne. Does 
as the voice in the in the next one. I was really disappointed because Joan Rivers' signature line is "Can we talk?" and so it's just like a perfect but like that's her catchphrase. So it's just like the perfect button, the perfect joke to go out on in this movie. And really, like if they were gonna do a sequel, how can you get anyone else now? You've set it up so perfectly. So I, yeah, you know, a little foreshadowing. I was a little bummed that Joan Rivers did not return. Yeah, we'll see what the next movie is. Mike, have you seen the next one? I've seen Look Who's Talking Two, not in theaters, but I've I can't recall ever seeing the third one. So, well, we will find out soon enough. Indeed. So for the voice of Mikey, while talking about voices, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Steve Martin, and John Candy were considered, but they were all busy with other projects. Robin Williams was considered, but apparently he wanted like $14 million or something, and the budget was $7 million. They obviously could not afford his crazy, crazy financial demands. They actually cut the budget in half by moving the production from New York to Vancouver. The other thing was that this is the only movie... Well, John Travolta said that this is the character that is most like his personality, which I guess is... A good thing? If, if he's actually like this character, that's a really good thing. But he also said this is the only movie he's ever seen of his, or the first one or something, where he watched the premiere and was like, oh, this is going to be a hit. Again, I don't know when that quote was from. Maybe it was way after the fact that that throw was a hit. But, you know, I feel like this is the kind of movie where you're like, oh, I can see why literally everyone would want to and would enjoy this movie. It was crazy. It really struck me this time watching it, knowing what ends up happening in film history with Travolta and Tarantino and his whole resurgence and everything. And it's like, if that never happened, he would have gone on to been like a great character actor for the rest of his career. Just like one of those guys, kind of like Richard Jenkins, who pops up everywhere and is really good and solid and everything. But like, no, like he got re propelled into superstardom once again only a few years later and he's just so good in this movie he's so good in this movie i think that's all the notes and stuff that i have to say about this i hope i hope the next one is even remotely as enjoyable as this one we will see i'm not going to doubt amy heckerling again now that she's in control of these movies i'm going to have full faith in her but just you know sequels generally especially when they're to a movie that's this good tall act to follow i'm just hoping yeah. you know it's enjoyable i know that bruce willis is back i didn't look are travolta and kirstie alley back yes we will see next week for look who's talking to and then also on mike's podcast look who's talking now uh, lots of baby talk in uh, a week from now yeah one thing before before we wrap up there is a lot of stuff about weight in this movie some of it good some of it bad like albert's wife is bulimic and it's like one of the first jokes in the movie which is very tasteless but i think that's i think it's tasteless for a point On yes purpose. to show that he's yeah despicable like every time what's the line like every time i even mention divorce she loses five pounds like he sees it as a good thing because he's a monster and just wants her to be thin yeah i just hope they wouldn't make that joke if this was made today. Well, there's also, I mean, at the very end, Bruce Willis, as the baby says, like, what am I, a retard or something like that? And I'm just like, oh, that's very clearly we're in 1989 right now. So there's, I think, a couple things that would hopefully be changed if we remade it today. Yeah. Do you think they'd remake this? Actually, in 2010, it was reported that none other than Fast and Furious producer Neil H. Moritz had plans to bring the Look Who's Talking franchise Oh, with the baby by Vin Diesel? hopes the reboot does happen. Oh, baby Vin Diesel. Yes, please. <laughs> Saying that I'd make some money. So here's hoping. I hope, I hope Amy gets paid. But the other thing about weight in this movie is that uh, she uses it as a marker of the passing of time during the pregnancy montage, which the first time that I watched it, I was like, oh, brother, why do we have to keep hammering home this whole weight gain thing? And then the second time that I watched it, I actually was thinking a lot more about kind of how women's bodies and women's weight is policed 
in general, but like especially when they're pregnant. And it reminded me that a very, very, two very good friends of mine just had a baby. And like literally the day after my friend gave birth, a, a doctor who was just covering somebody else's shift, wasn't even her doctor, walked into her hospital room, saw a box of Dunkin' Donuts munchkins on the table and said, actually, you know what? I'm going to reference the text message because I just want to get this right. It's pretty ridiculous. While you think about that, this reminds me of also, once again, Mike of Tully, where Charlize, you know, pregnant, goes through what feels like a normal pregnancy. And then her brother, Mark Duplass, his wife is talking about how she was doing yoga until the, like the hour she gave birth, like all this, like, you know, what a pregnancy should be, where, you know, her, where Albert's mm-hmm. wife only only gained 21 pounds while she was pregnant because she was running three miles a day. Like, just like the this yes, stereotypical yes, what, what a pregnant woman should do as opposed to what a pregnant woman actually realistically would be like, which is, you know, Kirstie Alumis or I'm assuming, I don't, I don't know, or Charlize Theron in Tully. Well, and even when we were recording The Road, I was like, mm, that pregnant, like, that childbirth scene didn't feel... Right. Authentic. Like, she's giving birth in the apocalypse, like, why isn't she more worried about this, you know? And I loved that in this movie, when Kirstie Alley is trying to ask for, me- like, pain medication while she's in yes. labor, the nurse tells her to, like, do her breathing better, and then in, like, an exorcist voice yells, fuck my breathing! And it's PG-13, they saved the only fuck for the perfect moment. Which is wonderful. We were just talking about that in uh, the Fast Five episode, which we recorded recently, which came out about a month ago on Too Fast, Too Forever, about, you know, that that one PG-13 fuck and just how it can be used so well. And, you know, when The Rock gets it especially, it's great. But in this one, also great. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about the weight before we get to the text message is that when she's getting on the scale, like, this movie effortlessly spans time in a really impressive way, I think, like, through that montage and through, Mm -hmm. like, just him getting older, the baby getting older and stuff like that. But she gets on the scale and weighs herself and shrugs the first time and then like sort of forces herself to shrug like the third time I think but I was thinking you know 20 years or 15 years later she would be in that show which I've never seen Fat Actress and I was like oh this is like a oh it's so good it's like almost as good as the comeback I have not seen that yet that. but I will the see that Lisa Kudrow soon. show oh my god she was good on Cheers too she was yeah mm-hmm. everybody knows your name and Veronica's Closet was also really good uh, can you find that text yes she said some doctor not mine he was covering came in to check me out yesterday morning said I seemed good all was well then looked at the munchkins on the table my parents had brought and went no more Dunkin Donuts huh and we were obviously like several question marks and he said gotta lose the weight postpartum right and this is an older gentleman doctor literally had never spoken to them before walked into the hospital room and this was how he decided to to introduce himself by making a comment about the weight of a woman who gave birth yesterday well as we know dudes generally not good at things in general, and also dudes and, you know, jokes. I mean, like, we we know this specifically from today. Uh, Dudes and jokes, people don't think about things before they say them. I'm not giving this guy any benefit of the doubt, but just, like, it doesn't surprise me because guys are dumb. Yeah, I have had doctors say uh, things you would not believe to me, so it, like, does not surprise me either, but at the same time, (laughs) I was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Also, this was, like, right after the Kavanaugh hearings, too, so I was, like, extra mad, but... Does her baby speak? 
your friend's baby. Not yet, but she has another one who's just figured it out. So, oh, uh, one last thing about this movie. And physical violence is never okay, but I love how many times Kirstie Alley beats the shit out of John Travolta in this movie. It's great because they get out of the car when they get to the hospital and she just starts beating him up because he was driving so crazy, which I loved. And then later on when he's babysitting, he tells her to go take a nap. And then without leaving a note or any sort of indication that he took the baby somewhere, he takes the baby somewhere (laughs) and puts him in the front seat. Oh, also leaves without a diaper bag or food. Like just like I I thought like that was so amateur babysitter, just dude, like, you know, I, I don't know if I would have thought about it in the time of that when, when he was coming back and he just, like, just comes back with the baby. I was like, oh, right, you brought nothing with you. If literally anything went wrong, you were up shit's creek without a paddle, but the, it's a good thing that this baby is the coolest baby in the history of babies because he's able to sort of be self-sustainable for the entire time. Yeah, but she straight up punches him <laughs> in the face, which I love because that's the appropriate reaction to that, which is, like, someone that you barely know took your baby without telling And then she starts hitting him with the diaper bag. I loved it. It's great. Karen, any other thoughts about Look Who's Talking before we come back next week for the sequel to this movie? We don't do a lot of sequels on on the network, so uh, especially, you know, within the same series, so... Yeah, so far, car crashes in every movie. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that cab ride scene was really well orchestrated. Like, that was good action directing there. I was kind of caught off guard and it kind of fell. I know, I know, Joe, you don't, don't really care for this movie, but one of the best moments in Die Hard 3 is the cab ride through Central Park. And I was like, wow, this is sort of like reminding me of that. Just like crazy cab rides in New York City. Really cool. I do want to rewatch Die Hard 3, but you are right. I do not like that movie very much. I just don't think it's a Die Hard movie because it wasn't originally a Die Hard. This is a different thing, but it wasn't originally a Die Hard movie. It was shoehorned to fit it into a Die Hard movie and people like it. I don't, but... Fair enough. Neither here nor there. Mike, any other thoughts about Look Who's Talking? Well, just that I I hadn't really watched this movie all the way through in, I mean, at least 10 years or so, but I had watched it so much growing up since I was 10. So, like, as a teenager, I mean, we used to bring a bunch of movies down the shore with us every year, and this was always there. So it was just always around, and I'm just really glad that it holds up. I think it might play, parts of it play better than it did because I'm just older and I can understand the movie on a very different level now. Yeah, if I saw this five years ago, I don't think I would have appreciated it the way that I did seeing it as a 31-year-old woman. So I'm I'm glad that I came to it at this time in my life. And I just think it's a great representation of Amy Heckerling, too. Like, I feel like I said earlier, like, I feel like I, I know her as a person better and that's what great filmmakers can do is be self-expressive and personal and be able to relate all that without getting confusing or comp- or, or too complex or anything. It's just like she has a very uh, straightforward way of explaining all of this and it just came across so well and it was just such a breeze and just so nice to watch and it was just a lot of fun and I'm really glad that we all liked it. Yeah, I am in the process of upgrading my letterbox rating of it from three and a half stars after the first watching to four and a half stars. Whoa. I really loved this. And just quickly about getting a better sense of Amy Hegerling or getting a consistent sense from movie to movie, just very briefly, that set decoration and the costumes in this were also really great, which is something that's come up a bunch of times and will continue to come up. Yeah, Kirstie Alley looked great in like everything she wore in this movie. Good on you, Amy Hegerling, and also the set and costume decorator. Yeah. And also the lighting design was great. 
Yeah, it was a great movie. It's also a weird movie, but a great movie. So anyway, come back next week for Look Who's Talking To, and also on Mike's podcast, Look Who's Talking Now, two baby movies, one day, next week, next Monday, the 17th. But for all things Cinemakers, including the three other movies we've done in here and the other 44 or something that we've done up to this point, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email this show, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Here's a little thing that I've been saying. You know, we, I've been saying we'll get to your emails at some point. The last thing we're recording for this series is the Red Oaks episodes that she directed. So we're going to probably have a pretty wide gap between the time we record the ninth episode and that one so we can watch the series. So there's a chance, if you're listening to this, you want to write in, we'll be able to read it on that episode. If you don't want to write in, that's totally fine. Email cinemakers at cageclub.me. We will see it. We will respond to it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Cara Gallo Regan. We'll see you next time for more baby movies right here on Cinemakers. Goodbye, goodbye!